Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on July 11, 2018, focusing on transforming your transfer pricing strategy in a post-tax reform world. The panelists for the webcast were Paige Hill, a PwC tax partner and our U.S. transfer pricing practice leader, David Ernick, a PwC tax partner focusing on transfer pricing issues, Chris Desmond, a PwC tax partner focusing on value chain transformation, and Quinn Wynn, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on transfer pricing considerations post-tax reform, specifically focusing on the new BEAT provisions. Have a listen. Quinn, let's turn to, to BEAT. It's an area where you know, international and transfer pricing are are, are overlaid even further. <laughs> how, are, how are you working through that with clients and with the transfer pricing um, teams? Yeah, it's, uh, well, interesting to be on a transfer pricing discussion, partly, you know, <laughs> sort of, it's hard now in the new world order to sort of practice in just your area, you know, international. Now there's a huge overlay with 42 and even with our methods folks. So I spent a lot of my time, in fact, now coordinating with a lot of our other colleagues uh, in particularly with respect to the bead, it's one of those unique provisions, um, as Chris and all of you have mentioned. This is the one where uh, essentially, like guilty, it's a minimum tax. Um, if you make a lot of deductible payments to foreign-related parties, you're going to have to potentially face and think about uh, implications from a beat perspective. And so, a lot of what I think uh, companies have been seeing and doing in the past few months really are looking at the four bullet points that you've, you've highlighted here, at least from a transfer pricing perspective, you know, cost of goods sold is a huge uh, exception from a base erosion payment. And so if you have payments that can go into your cost of goods sold, those deductions um, or those reductions essentially are not deductions that you add back when you're computing the bead. And so a lot of companies that maybe didn't think about their cost of goods before um, are now thinking about it and doing studies on whether they've been doing it appropriately and certainly thinking about identifying, again, uh, transactions. The service cost method exception is, again, another area where a lot of companies are heavily focused on the exception, looking at the types of services that they have going on, whether these services are even eligible for the SCM. And putting aside whether they're eligible for the SCM exception, there's still a lot of uncertainty also about the cost versus the market component issues that I think we've discussed extensively on prior uh, webcasts. The other area where I, th I think we're starting to see a lot more movement now or concern also is with respect to cost-sharing arrangements and sort of the payments, the, the intangible cost development payments that are being made there, um, and whether or not those payments, if made to a foreign-related party, are going to be treated as BEAT, and whether you can take a position that it's the net computations that you're allowed to deduct that would be potentially uh, only subject to beat, or whether there's going to be some sort of unbundling of payments uh, in order to get at the right amount of, of the beat add back, if you will. Um, so there have been a lot of issues and a lot of companies worried about sort of their cost sharing arrangements and how that plays into the beat. Uh, and lastly, a lot of foreign corporations that have previously been trying to manage their PE exposure because they don't want to have, well, even if they have a US trade or business, if they're in a treaty jurisdiction, for business profits reasons, they might have been trying to manage the PE exposure. Certainly, if you have a PE now and you're potentially going to be subject to the BEAT provision, a lot of 
foreign corporations are also equally worried about the potential add back on this min tax with respect to their ECI payments. And so um, they're also focused on managing PE exposure to the extent that they've been operating in the United States. Um, and so you see a lot of that going on. One of the areas where a lot of there, there continues to be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of companies are evaluating this is their bilateral APA relationship. So companies that have had you know, a, a decent experience with the bilateral APAs um, you know, value that. They are negotiated competent authority agreements for a particular transaction or transactions and they've been applying them for a number of years and obviously in light of tax reform they are concerned about sort of what is the benefit of the APA um, or payments that I'm making pursuant to those APAs in light of the beat and the potential exposure that I have. Um, and this is particularly acute for those companies that were looking at the SCM exception, for example. If you have any markup, which you might if you're applying your APA agreement correctly, um, you may be exposed to the beat. And is there any way in which the competent authorities through an APA potentially could address or mitigate some of the exposure for BEAT. Now, there's been no guidance from Treasury or the IRS competent authority about the APA program and whether or not there's going to be capacity, I guess, to deal with some of these issues through a bilateral agreement with foreign jurisdictions. Um, the view being potentially that if you have an APA agreement that the two competent authorities have bilaterally negotiated, is there a risk that you are somehow eroding the United States base? And perhaps you're not if you know, if you've agreed to a arm's length uh, pricing uh, consistent with our treaty obligations and it mitigates the potential exposure, as David indicated earlier, um, from double tax, potentially multiple taxation, because the payor that's making the deductible payment could be subject to a beat exposure. The payee, if the foreign corp is somehow engaged in a U.S. trade or business, could also be subject to tax in the United States if that foreign corp also happens to be a CFC, that payment to a CFC, if not, um, if not itself subject to beat, could also be picked up as guilty or subpart F income. <laughs> and obviously effect. the foreign country is going to want to tax locally that income as well. And so you have like potential for multiple um, streams of taxation to which I think the competent authorities should be well equipped to deal with, with yeah. mitigating some of that at least. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't think that the beat ever suggested that the payments weren't arm's length. So, Fair. Um, and and also, I think you know one thing we've talked about, David, is you know, for example, with India, where you may agree to a cost plus of you know say fifteen percent, um, you have you automatically you know ruled yourself out of an SCM exception because of an agreement that that's you know potentially the median markup, which would violate the SCM application. So you know, sort of things that are in play as well, um, I think, are, are at risk as well. Yeah, I think a lot of potential unintended co consequences. And Quinn, maybe I can ask you, so for a lot of these things, I mean, we've got a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions that won't be answered until Treasury issues regulations. You just came from Treasury not too long ago. Can I ask you, you know, you're in a situation like this, you've got statutory language, it's unclear, a lot of questions, taxpayers want answers, not clear exactly what congressional intent is in some of these situations, what would you do if you're the one drafting these regulations? Any any insight to what Treasury is going to do? Will they be taxpayer friendly, taxpayer unfriendly? They they you know they've got questions about how much of the the problems they can make go away, how much authority they have. What, what do you think they'll be thinking about when they issue these regulations? 
Yeah, I think in terms of uh, working through what the regulatory process is going to be like for this particular administration and the folks who are working from a policy perspective at Treasury, you know, as you know, I think if you if you're working through a new statutory provision, I think one of the first things you try to do is figure out what did they mean to do, and uh, the legislative history in this case, unfortunately, is not necessarily um, as robust as it could have been, and there currently isn't a blue book out yet that so, sort of further explains or provides something for Treasury and IRS to look to for inspiration as they start drafting. I imagine, though, that they are probably having back-channel discussions with the folks on the Hill who enacted the provision to try to get clarity, try to get some direction of what was intended in light of the statutory text. Um, and even if something was intended, they didn't necessarily write it that way, is the other problem. And so the intention may have been there, but the language itself is just not there. We see that in, you know, particularly, I guess, with 984 and the fact that the attribution rules for stock, for example, were just repealed. And it, that came with a bunch of other consequences that may or may not have been intended. And um, even if they were not intended, though, I think there's a recognition that the way in which that particular provision was done, pulling it, you know, didn't leave a whole lot of authority for Treasury to necessarily come in and fix uh, something. And so I think it's going to be a mix of them trying to work through what was the intent behind the provision, what does the provision actually say, and where do we have authority or capacity to make changes to implement the provision. And so they may be taxpayer favorable changes, they may not be. Um, and I think largely it will be driven by the conversations, hopefully the productive conversations that they're having with the Senate and uh, Ways and Means staff. Um, just maybe we can just talk a little bit about um, the characterization of payments and why it is so important a little more specifically here. Yeah, uh, thanks Paige. I mean, I think you hit upon this a little bit in the context of guilty, you know, the range and whether the range matters. In the context of reform and in particular the BEAT provision, Range does matter. One of the thresholds for being an applicable taxpayer and having to worry at all about the beat is that you have a 3% or a 2% base erosion per, uh, percentage, depending on whether you're a securities dealer or a bank. Um, and a lot of companies in evaluating their transactions are trying to you know, maybe fall below the 3% threshold. And that requires taking a look at your deductible payments. It requires looking at who are you buying from in terms of uh, amortizable or depreciable property. And those margins matter. A lot of companies could be very close to the 2 or 3%. And you know it's a cliff effect. If you hit 3, you know, you're in the soup. And so uh, one of the areas, as I mentioned earlier, cost of a goods sold, for example, is a good uh, indication of this. You know, companies are taking a look at you know, how have they been characterizing that payment because a single payment may include a bunch of different charges within it, right? And that's where transfer pricing really is important. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, I'm just going to pick on cost of goods sold. You know, if you're trying to take a position that what you've been paying for the last 10 years all has appropriately been capitalized in a 263 cap A, it's been put into cost of goods sold, companies maybe weren't worrying. And now they're going back and going, wait a minute, is that the right amount? And is there an embedded you know, royalty perhaps on a marketing intangible, and is that appropriately capitalized? And so they are going back and trying to scrub and think about what they've done in the past and whether those positions continue to be appropriate in light of the fact that maybe in the past, no harm, no foul with some of this stuff, you could correct it. Um, but when you're dealing with a 3% threshold and then all the implications that come with it under beat, mm -hmm. I think that's where companies get very worried and certainly are being 
a lot more meticulous about how they've been characterizing payments because, as you say, you know, whether something is cost of goods sold or whether it's a below-the-line deduction may have a huge uh, impact on companies. Yeah, and, and then there's also the effect that the more you put into cost of goods, the smaller your denominator, you might be triggering a 3% threshold. That's right. So, you know, you really have to do the modeling. <laughs> do the Thank modeling, you. playing around with yeah. it. Same thing with service cost method, to the extent you're able to take a position that um, some of your service payments would be eligible and not be included as a base erosion tax benefit, when you're looking at your 3% threshold again, you have to remove it both not only from the numerator, but from the denominator as well. And we've seen companies um, fall into that as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.